Hi, I'm Jasmine. And this is Tori. And this is Book Biopsy, the podcast that biopsies a book each month and discusses it in the context of the medical student experience. Through this book, we'll talk about our failures and our triumphs and try to give you a more accurate picture of what our lives are actually like as third-year medical students. So the book we have chosen a biopsy this month is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Feel free to read ahead of time or just take it in with us. The book Maybe You Should Talk to Someone came out in 2019 and was a New York Times bestseller and it's currently being developed into a TV series. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone is a nonfiction autobiographical book about a therapist and her experience as a therapist and also a client in therapy. So on the pod today, we're going to be discussing themes from the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and relate them back to our lives as we know them currently as third-year medical students on rotations. All right, Jasmine, let's do a biopsy. Okay, Tori, let's begin this biopsy by talking a little bit about therapy. One thing I thought was kind of funny about the book was the characters would come in for one reason, but they were actually there for another. For example, Lori went to therapy because her boyfriend broke up with her and she wanted to figure out if he was justified in breaking up with her. And she was actually there because she was scared of death. Another character, John, came in because he wasn't sleeping when, in reality, he was there because he couldn't process the death of his son. And I kind of want to use this platform to talk a little bit about therapy and mental health in medical school. And I'll do this by talking about my own mental health journey. When I was a second year, I was studying in a coffee shop when I suddenly felt like I was going to have a heart attack. I thought I was going to die. And I went up to the barista and said, oh my gosh, you need to call an ambulance. I'm having a heart attack. And she came around the the bench and basically told me, no, you're not having a heart attack. You're having a panic attack. Just sit down, put this cool cloth on your face and everything's going to be okay. Just breathe. So I decided I have to go to therapy because I don't want to have panic attacks anymore. And it turned out I was internalizing a lot of things about medical school that were difficult for me. Like I would be studying all the time and I would give up going to weddings, birthday parties, seeing family in order to study. And even though I was putting in all this work, I wasn't seeing the benefits. I was still getting grades that were subpar compared to the ones that I would get in my undergraduate degree. In medical school, sometimes you feel like you are just a number. You're only as good as what your scores are. And that is absolutely not true. And it took me a while to process, okay, just because I'm not getting above 90% on everything doesn't mean that I can't contribute positively to the medical field. (laughs) I am compassionate, smart. And I can put things together in ways that are different than someone who could be getting 90% on all of their tests. Thank you for sharing that, Jasmine. And um, it's, I know it can be really hard to show that vulnerability as a medical student and a professional and to show that personal side of yourself. So thank you for sharing that. 
course. I feel like a lot of us have these stories, but we can't really share them because as medical students, we have to be able to do everything without falling apart. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're touching on right now resonates with me and the idea of perfectionism and having to do your best, be your best 100% of the time. Um, My medical student journey has been in many ways similar to yours, but also a little bit different and different from what I expected. Um, So when I started medical school, I had, it had been a few years since I had been in the classroom and I was definitely very nervous about coming back and readjusting. And at the same time, I had just moved across the country um, with my partner. And it was the first time that we were moving in together and living, cohabitating together. So, Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> it was a lot of changes for me at one time um, between not being anywhere close to my family, my friends, my support system, and um, beginning this new chapter in my life with my partner and this new chapter in my professional life as a medical student. Um, so it was a lot of adjusting at first. And I really struggled with how to process my stress in the right way. Um, Thinking back to, I actually, like you, found that therapy was an appropriate path for me during my first few years of medical school, which I did not anticipate. But just the changes of being in this new place with um, in a new 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 time in my life and being a little bit more isolated from my usual sources of um, support and the incredible stressors that medical school puts on all of us can be so isolating. Um, so I found that I wasn't able to handle the stress in a way that I found productive. Um, so that's what brought me to therapy in my first year. And um, that perfectionism, I found, was really um, what tends to be my own worst enemy in becoming a successful um, student or um, a successful partner or whatever you want to say. So getting to understand myself in those ways, I think, has been incredibly beneficial for me not only to... um, be able to operate my best in medical school and in my life and in my relationships, but also I hope to bring a more nuanced understanding of myself to the encounters I have with my patients in the future. So another theme in this book that has got me thinking is the concept of seeing the whole patient. Gottlieb presents these patients as what she terms snapshots. And that when we see that patient, it is a snapshot. It is a snapshot of that person at this time in this place. And we may be seeing them at their worst. We may be seeing them on an off day. And we may not be getting the whole picture. In fact, we usually are not getting the whole picture. I love this idea of thinking about this as a snapshot of a patient. And using this snapshot to meet the patient where they're at right now in this moment, but also hold space for imagining future possibilities for that patient. One thing that I've noticed is that sometimes when patients are unwilling to change, that hesitancy is sometimes met with hesitancy to aid on the part of the physician. 
And what I mean by that is, oh, this person has obesity. This person is a smoker. This person is a drinker. They know what they need to do. I don't need to tell them what to do. And in a sense, I understand that because you can't tell someone to change. You have to. They have to want to change and they have to come to that realization themselves. But I feel like that doesn't hold the space for them to change in the way that would be most helpful, most supportive to the patient. It kind of irks me when uh, I hear that they know what they need to do. It's not my responsibility to tell them what to do because if their physician is not going to discuss with them or at least recommend certain um, changes to their lifestyle for their health benefit, then who will? Patients are already being given information through Instagram, through media, through their their social circles. And some of that information is not trustworthy or imposes unhealthy risks onto the patient. And you as a physician, it is your responsibility, in my opinion, to guide that person. And like I said, I think it's not in a paternalistic sense. I think it's in a partnership. I think it's in a way that recognizes the stages of change and that people don't change when you tell them to change. But I don't know. How do you feel about that, Jasmine? I love the way that you put that. I think I have had similar frustrations where providers will be irritated with patients, unwilling to help them because the patients appear to be unwilling to help themselves. But I think if we start walking away from this role as the physician, as you said, the paternalistic person who's in charge of their lives and dictating what they need to do to get better. And one way I like to think about it is you're more of like a coach on a team Mm. than the boss in a factory. So your job is more to partner with the patient and it's more finding out what is where is the patient at in their lives and what changes are they willing to make in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not there to judge them. You're there to help guide them and they have come to a realization that they're ready to move on to the next step. You're there to change the game plan mm-hmm. and give them the new info so they can adapt. Mm-hmm. Um I actually had a patient like that today. At my clinic. Yeah. So they came in with their disease and they weren't taking any of their medications to take care of it. And we're just taking like the bare minimum. And the provider came in and was like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? You don't have any control over this disease. We have to start adding these medications. Otherwise, you're just going to get worse and worse. And the patient was got really defensive right away. This was not the right tack to take with this patient. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the provider really adapted to that and totally took a step back and found little ways that the patient was willing to change, whether that was their diet or exercise or completing little exams along the way so that they start becoming more in charge of their own health. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. huge changes, but they did have a couple little wins. And in the end, the patient was agreeable to coming back for a follow-up appointment. I don't know if they will or not, but it's just about making those tiny steps towards change sometimes because people have their own lives and their own priorities. And just because our priority is we have to get this under control doesn't mean that they're in the place where that's their priority right now. Yeah. I think you really demonstrated with that the idea of meeting the patients where they are and not 
with, with no judgment whatsoever, coming from a place of really wanting to help them achieve their goals, whatever their goals are for their health. And I love that um, Gottlieb in this book, she really enforces that it's not just your first encounter with the patient. It's one, that's one encounter. And every single encounter after that, you must also be imagining their potential future health and holding that hope for them if they can't muster it themselves. I agree. We need to hold hope for the patient and set them up for success in every way that we can. For example, that patient that I was talking about earlier, I had to write the note for their chart and I was really struggling with what to put in there. Just because they weren't ready to engage with me at that moment doesn't mean that they won't be ready in the future. And I didn't want to write them off as someone who will never want to engage in their health. So another theme that really resonated with me was the theme of death that was throughout. And that was really portrayed in Julie her patient who was a cancer patient. And she came to Lori because she wanted a therapist that wasn't a cancer therapist. And so she could just be herself and be normal. And so there was ups and downs to their journey because Lori wasn't specifically trained to deal with death in the this way, but there was also benefits because she could help Julie work through some things in ways that were different than a cancer therapist could have. That really resonated with me because I haven't had a lot of experience with death coming up into medical school. The first deceased patient I saw was was my donor patient in anatomy, <laughs> Dennis, and the first thing I did to him when I saw him was take all of his skin oh off gosh. with a knife. Oh, yeah. The memories. So, all flooding back in this creepy lab. <laughs> so seeing someone die in real life and in a hospital that I knew, I was really anxious about. I really didn't know how I was going to handle it. And just kind of hoped I would never have to do deal with that at all. And both fortunately and unfortunately for me, I had an intern on my internal medicine rotation. We'll just call him Eddie, who really like didn't let me shy away from that hmm. part. On one of my first days, he texted me and was like, have you ever seen someone die or been in the room with someone who was dying? And I was just like, oh, gosh, (laughs) (laughs) no. And he was like, okay, I have this patient who has come here to die, and I would like to take you to see him, but you do not have to. You can say yes or no, depending on your comfort level. Either answer is correct. And I was like, okay, I'll I'll go, like, just take me to see this patient. And I was kind of really thrown off because this person was in really late stages of their disease. And to the point where they were no longer conscious and their lungs had filled up with fluid, just the sounds they were making 
as they were breathing was so labored and they were using every muscle in their abdomen to breathe. It was just shocking to me. I was, is this person in pain? I couldn't even tell. So Eddie kind of goes up to them and he listens to their heart and their lungs. And then we leave. We go back to this little cubby where we were typing notes. And I thought it was just going to be that. Like he would just leave it where it was, but he was, he just sat down and closed the door behind us and said, how are you feeling right now? I just burst into <laughs> tears, <laughs> and, which was so unusual. And I told him, I was like, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know this man. I've literally never said a word to him before in my entire life. Why am I crying? I don't mm. know. He was like, no, <laughs> you're crying for a reason. We are raised to feel, to know that every human life has meaning and every human life has touched other lives. When someone comes into the hospital, it doesn't matter if they're incompliant, homeless, or a senator's daughter. We're going to do everything we can to help save their lives. In this case, it doesn't feel good to you because... We're not actively trying to save this person's Mm -hmm. life because that's not the best thing for this man right now. We are here to help them just be as comfortable as possible while they're passing. That really stuck out to me because I knew we would have to deal with patients passing in the hospital. But I guess I didn't fully grasp that sometimes people are here and they're going to die and we need to help let them go in the best, most comfortable way for them and their family as possible Mm -hmm. and help their families through some of the darkest times they will face. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's been quite a learning curve for me in uh, the hospital setting to understand the, the levels of care, kind of, I don't know how to say it. Um, understanding that not every p- patient wants to be saved. And I understand that. I think it's more that the decision is so foreign to me at this point in my life, thinking that there is a point where I wouldn't want them to do CPR on me and I wouldn't want them to do everything to save me. But in some ways, that can be the best option for a patient. And it highlights the idea of patient autonomy, um, a powerful thing. I think one thing that you talked about the CPR, I felt similarly like, of course, I want you to do CPR on me and my family members, like do everything you can to help prolong our lives. That was another thing that Eddie taught me was he was talking to a patient about DNR. They were like, no, no, I want, I don't want to be DNR. And they were very, very frail. And he was like, Mm -hmm. okay, that's fine. But you have to realize when we do chest compressions, we're going Mm -hmm. to break all of your ribs. It's going to be so painful to recover from that. We're going to put a tube down your throat to help you breathe. And you may not be able to come off of that tube for the rest of your life. He was just telling them straight up how it is. I was shocked by his bluntness, but also at the same time, I feel like that is really very important information Mm -hmm. to have. You have to have the whole picture before you decide. I had never seen a code. I still haven't seen a code. So I had no idea how brutal CPR was or resuscitation. 
And I bet this patient hadn't seen it either. So it was really important information for him to share at that time for that patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I think being as clear and honest with the patient about what lies ahead is the most kind thing and responsible thing you can do. I had the opportunity to sit in on a few palliative care meetings. The way that they approach it is, I, I'm so glad that I got to see this because I don't think I would have ever known to do it this way. The way they approach it is, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? What quality of life do you want to have? Here are your options to be able to do that. And sometimes what the patient wants isn't what the family wants. And that is just heartbreaking to see. And of course, the family doesn't want to let go of this person that they love. But at the same time, it's not their decision. It really, it does fall with the patient Mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. And Jasmine, that brings us right into another topic we wanted to talk about today, which is understanding the personal professional patient physician relationship, that line that we've been talking about. So talking about Julie and at the end of her life, she requests that her therapist attend her funeral, which I think is common for physicians, therapists to attend their patient's funeral. But it comes with a lot of fraught questions when you get to that funeral. So you have to maintain a certain emotional distance as you, as, um, you have to make, you have to protect HIPAA, right? You have to, you cannot state, yeah, this person was in therapy with me. Even that is a violation of HIPAA. So she almost has to lie to these people when they say, who, who is, how do you know the patient? How do you know this person at the funeral? And she, she cleverly does not lie. She says she is my friend and she really meant that. Um, but that, I'm sure that's not always the case where you feel like you are friends with your patient. So how tough that is to have to keep that distance when you may want to join in. And you've probably heard about these people in the patient's life before, or you want to bond with them in their grief, but you really have to maintain a distance. That sounds so tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that distance is something that um, Lori Gottlieb experiences throughout the book. Um, I think it's so funny how she talks about going across the street to the pharmacy and you don't want the patient to see you buying pretty much anything at the pharmacy. (laughs) Like you especially don't want them to see you buying condoms or constipation meds or some of your hemorrhoids or, you know, picking up your prescriptions there. And, oh, my therapist has an STD. My therapist has a mental disorder. She's, she's on Prozac. How am I supposed to trust my therapist? I mean, it's just, there's so many potential things that could be, um, make the comp- make the relationship more complicated between you and your patient. But physicians are humans. Therapists are humans. We have to go out and take care of our basic needs. We have to go to the pharmacy. We have to deal with these things. It's tough, but this patient is trusting you with the most intimate details of their life, and you offer basically nothing in return. You, in terms of, yeah, in terms of emotional risk, right? Yeah, you've got the upper hand the whole time here, which is you know, it's 
a power differential as um, you're being trusted with the most intimate details of a patient's life. At one point, Julie looks Lori in the eyes and says, nobody, not her friends, not her boyfriend, not her family knows how depressed she is. Nobody but the therapist, right? And this, this is a stranger to her a few, a few days ago. And um, here they are <laughs> in this very unique relationship. And I think that's, I think that's, that's so, it's so special um, in the, in the patient physician relationship that you are immediately, not always, <laughs> but you're typically granted a certain amount of trust just by being the doctor or the provider. I actually never really thought of it that way before. The emotional risk that the patient is taking telling you their deepest, darkest secrets. Whereas you are literally, they could tell me like, oh, yeah, I had a one night stand last night. Normally don't do this, but I need some something for an STD. I'm not going to share anything in return about my life or commit like. I will off obviously try to offer the most comfort that I can, but I don't have to reveal any personal details about myself mm-hmm. to them. That is a huge power differential. And there, yeah, there really is no emotional risk for me going into this, but I do have to be able to build trust and build a connection without sharing details of my life, which is a little harder. Yeah than any a normal connection you would have with a friend or yeah something. it's it was just making me think of um our standardized patient encounters where you're graded on the most intangible things right like empathy and connecting with your fake patient <laughs> in front of you um and there's boxes you check and that's that but in reality you have to make a decision of how much information to share with that patient about yourself how much to um pry into that patient's life and whether it's appropriate or not in the context of of their their health yeah I also would not feel comfortable sharing personal details with someone I had just met or even if the I had known the patient for 10 years just because I would want to have them see me as as a physician, as this person who's in this role to help guide them through their health and mental health needs. And I don't want my life to become a barrier to them being able to connect with me. I just want to be a, a blank book. <laughs> <laughs> they don't feel any judgment or resentment from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think. That's that's that safe space you're holding. So Jasmine, I think we should talk about uh, the art of medicine, which is that buzz buzz phrase I think we hear a lot. Um, but it, can, <laughs> it started to make a little bit more sense when I was reading this book. And it's I love that um, the author was a previous medical student because she <laughs> she kind of relates. Uh, to me in that way. And when she talks about how when she was medical school, it it wasn't that nerve wracking to have to um, palpate an abdomen. Like there's a very clear itinerary of the steps you need to take and do Um, versus 
um, as a therapist where she's um, applying all of these numerous abstract psychological theories to her patients um, each day and in each individual context. Um, And that's really getting out the art of medicine, right? That you have so much knowledge that's been crammed into your brain um, and you have to figure out the right the right person, the right patient, the right time, the right place to apply that knowledge um, and crafting that in a way that connects with your patient. Um, so I, I could relate to her like sitting in her first patient encounter and just mind being blank because there's so many different avenues to go with a patient. If you're doing, if you're doing some kind of uh, counseling or, um, therapy in this case, right? You could, you could talk about so many things. You could apply so many different theories. Um, you could say so many different things. So, um, she talks about how this was a struggle for her at first. And I really feel that struggle right now as a medical student, you know, I always want to be like, what is the right way to do this? There's gotta be a right way to do this. You know, whether it's which diabetes medication should this patient have right now? Or, um, you know, what kind of therapy would be best for this patient in, in a psych rotation. But I'm realizing, and it's tough, there is no right way to be a doctor to um, apply treatment. I think there are wrong ways, maybe. I'm also not convinced of that, but we can get into that. Um, but <laughs> it's really complicated to say, to think this this doctor prescribes, let's, let's go with diet. This, this, because doc, diet is such a controversial thing, right? Everybody has their own opinions on it and 10 different doctors will give you 10 different answers about what their diet, sh- what the patient's diet should be. So say this one doctor prescribes a keto diet or like a carnivorous diet. Um, and then I'm over here being like plant-based, plant-based. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't, it's, it's almost like religion. Like, I feel like there's not one right way. I think there's science and there's studies and there's, you know, there is evidence for and against things, but every patient is different. Every patient is not that patient in the study necessarily. I think I'm trying to be less judgmental and more like a sponge (laughs) in, um, listening to differing theories and differing ideas and trying to just take it in all right now and work out for myself what I think will be the best in my practice in the future. And that's the art of medicine. That's like the autonomy that we have as as physicians to take in all of this information and apply it in a meaningful way, in an individual way for each patient. Yes, Tori. I, I definitely agree with that. One thing I will say from the medical student perspective, being on rotations, well, on my first day of my internal medicine rotation, my preceptor said, here's your chance. Like, go out there, make mistakes, learn, have have fun, like, get curious, get out there. Like, if you're going to make mistakes, make them now, which totally like sounds good in theory but I realized as I went on is just not (laughs) practical (laughs) because you are being I don't you're being graded when you're out there so you want to show up and look the best that you possibly can 
And you don't really want to make a mistake that's too bad in front of the preceptor because then your grade will suffer Mm -hmm. and your grades basically feel like they determine your future (laughs) when you're in medical school. Yeah. Like, you are your grade. And um, so that was one thing I really struggled with was I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I didn't want to do the wrong exam. I didn't want to put the wrong idea out there. And I feel like that just hurt me even more because me not saying anything just made me look like, oh, there's nothing going on in behind. <laughs> there's nothing yeah. happening. Where's her thought process? What is, she's just not really bringing anything to the table here. Jasmine, and, Yes. <laughs> and there is a lot of stuff happening in my mind but I just was too scared to be wrong and say the wrong thing yeah I I am I am just like nodding my head over here because that is exactly how I've been feeling um this this week in this rotation is um that dichotomy of being in a very inexperienced position um, and also having to present yourself with such confidence and conviction with both your patients and your attending that you haven't quite earned yet. <laughs> it's, a, it's, mm-hmm. it's that imposter thing coming through over and over again in my brain saying like, you know, you don't know, <laughs> like, what, what are you doing? And you have to, I have to like shove that back and, and, um, just try to be confident and and also be curious. It's a, it's like a very, I think that's also the balance you have to strike as a physician though, because even when you get that license, you don't know everything, right? You're always learning. You're always trying to grow. Um, you definitely have experience under your belt. You definitely have, um, you definitely have knowledge and opinions, medical opinions. And that's, that's, that's great. That's, that's the purpose of, of our training, but finding that balance between um, having conviction and confidence and being, I guess, cocky or what's the word? We're just closed off. I don't know. Um, Yes. I think there, it's so hard to toe the line between being confident and being uh, unapproachable. Yeah. Yeah, I think the idea is malleability, like being able to, like you have, you're, you're kind of, it's kind of like someone uh, melding or, or hammering together a a device, a jewel, whatever. I don't know. I'm not into mallying. So I don't, (laughs) that's the word. I don't know. I don't know. Um, But that you have this idea in mind of like the doctor you want to be. And there's all these forces, this heat, this pressure, this stress that um, come together and, and and try and bend you one way or another, right? And you have to find the strength in yourself to both take in that information and stick to who you are as a person and who you want to be as a physician and hold those both at the same time. So it's it's really challenging. It's interesting you say that because it um, reminds me of something that happened earlier today with um, another medical student um, who is a female or identifies as a female. And um, 
they are, <laughs> they had an interaction with their attending today, um, in which the attending told them it was unprofessional for them to wear pink scrubs. Um, and this was kind of hurtful to that student. Um, and I think the intention behind that was to guide them to say females in medicine need to present themselves in a more tough kind of exterior way, um, in a more masculine way, I guess they might say to by dressing in pink, you're expressing too much femininity and that in some way makes you less trustworthy to a patient. And you know that that's not, they're, they're trying to help and they're trying, because what ended up happening later in the day actually is um, that one of the patients thought she would just kept calling her the nurse. Right. And then I think that's probably a lot of females in medicine who aren't nurses get that they're nurses a lot because it's the stereotypical gendered role in the medical field oh yes i was called the nurse a lot <laughs> inpatient rotation yeah so um it got me thinking you know is there no place for self-expression if if you want to if you want to wear pink if you want to be like you know colorful or whatever if you as long as you're professional i don't understand how that I think we should be fighting against that stereotype, not buying into it, is what I'm trying to say. I agree, Tori. <laughs> I think if you want to show up in pink scrubs and be you, it it isn't diminishing you in any way. That is just helping push back against the stereotypes. Like you, you she is going to be a physician. She is intelligent, brilliant person who is capable and strong. And if she shows up in pink scrubs and shows that someone, a woman in pink scrubs can still get things done just because she's wearing a feminine color. Yeah. Despite the fact that her clothes are (laughs) feminine, she can, she's still capable. So I agree. I think we do need to be fighting against these stereotypes. I think the, oh, go ahead. The amount of times I've seen, like, a man with a, a purple stethoscope <laughs> or something, and, like, no one really says anything, but they will comment if you are a woman with a pink stethoscope. It reminds me of, like, the 90s power suits with the shoulder pads, right? <laughs> yeah. to, be, to be a powerful woman in the workplace, you have to dress like a man, which is ridiculous. Um, in my opinion, I think professional is the way to dress, not, not feminine or not masculine. You dress however you want to dress. As long as I can't see your cleavage or I can't see your balls, like, great. (laughs) As long as your male camel toe isn't showing through your... (laughs) Right. And if someone mistakes you for a nurse, all you do is tell them, hi, I'm your doctor. That's it. Going back to the going back to the idea of applying theory to real patients, I loved how um, Lori Gottlieb in the book she really shows us her personality as a therapist. 
like she she makes it known that she knows the rules of therapy, right? She knows all the theories, she's skillful, she can really she knows where to draw the lines and she knows um professional on professional kind of thing, right? But mm-hmm. she knows that she can also play with that. Um she knows so well those rules that she can improvise, right? She can skillfully go around that. Um not go around that, but she can she can work with that. Um for example, when she's with the patient and the patient asks, you know, um, you know what would help me right now? This is the, Julie, the person who's dying. You know what really help me right now is you, if you and me just ended therapy by screaming fuck as loud as we can and, and that's it. And Julie goes right along with that and they do that. And I think it scares the shit out of everyone in the office, but that was a really healing moment for Julie. And I think even for the therapist. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, another Julie moment that kind of, I think, goes into this is when Lori comes into the office and she and Julie, she sits down in front of Julie and Julie says, is that a pajama top you're wearing? Yes. <laughs> and it just says, namaste. <laughs> <laughs> and Lori just goes with it. She's just like, yep, I just grabbed the wrong shirt coming here today. <laughs> and it actually worked. Showing her humanity worked. <laughs> and Julie didn't dump her as a patient just because she showed up in a pajama top one day. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It- <laughs> So another thing that really struck me about this book was the theme of living in the moment. Uh, One of the quotes that I really enjoyed was, if you go through life picking and choosing, you don't realize that the perfect is the enemy of the good and you may deprive yourself of joy. And I feel like that is one thing about going into medicine that a lot of people don't realize is when you're in medical school and in medical training, you have to give up so much that you feel like you're putting your life on hold. And you're just like, oh, my life will be better when I'm on my clinical years. My life will be better when I'm an intern. My life will be better when I'm attending. That's when I'll start living. (laughs) And then you realize you can't just put off happiness for 10 years. (laughs) So you have to find ways to really live in the moment and find little pieces of happiness and joy along the journey it can be and it's a grueling journey there are pieces that are wonderful and so incredible but there's a lot that is taxing Mm -hmm. and emotional and wears you down and if you don't find those little pieces of happiness Mm -hmm. throughout your time you're not you're gonna have a hard time making it through Mm -hmm. yeah there's no doubt about it. What we're doing is tough. And I I agree. You, it's tempting to say, I'm just going to focus on school and nothing else matters. But simply, that's not true. And 
how can you <laughs> medical training is so long how can you only focus on that not take care of yourself not take care of your your hopes your dreams your future um yeah there is this idea of we just need to get our training done it's like it'll be better than we'll, we'll be less in debt we'll be happier we'll have more freedom and while some of that may be true it does not mean that those things bring you any more happiness because there's stressors that come with that too. Just like there's stressors now. And in fact, if you think about it, there is some freedom we have right now in being a student. Um, and that, that, that unique role we have of we get to learn, we get to observe, we get to participate, but nobody's going to sue me. <laughs> you can't use yeah. this. No, court. Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I love how she in the book also relates to this in her training. Like she's at the end of her, um, I guess kind of like their version of a residency where she has to do a certain amount of hours in the clinic to uh, get her certificate. And she's trying to go as fast as possible through those hours and, and finish before anyone else, just get it done with. So she can start her practice. Right. And she hears someone, this someone in who's in charge of the training says to her, what does it matter what age you are when that, when you're, when you're finished with training? Like, what does it matter if you're done now or 10 years from now? Either way, you won't get back today. I think that really stuck with me. I have this idea of, oh, I need to get through medical school. I need to get through residency and I need to get on with my life. You know, sometimes that is a thought that we all have is like, when are we going to be living our, our lives? <laughs> but we are. Another quote that I really liked about that she talked about her training, one of her attendings told her they were talking about how old they were going to be when they were done with training. Yeah. And the attending was like, you're going to turn 30 no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You can either be on the journey towards what you want to be doing for the rest of your life or be postponing or doing something that you're not going to really love. And I think that was important, especially for like a lot of ZO students. I feel like we're Mm non-traditional. We tend to be a little older and we tend to think that that's negative almost like, oh gosh, I'm going to be so old when I'm done, but that's not necessarily a negative thing. Having life experience before going into medical school, I feel like can be so crucial because you're able to experience different people, different cultures, have a regular job that you have to work from nine to five and just experience life. And those life experiences help you connect with your patients more If you understand their lives better, you're able to make recommendations for their treatment and health much better than you would if you had not had those life experiences at all. Yes. I think there is this like pressure to rush through and get everything done. And even on a daily basis, right, to like get your notes done right away, do it, get it done with, move on to the next thing, next patient. And, and you kind of have to do that sometimes to be, stay on track and manage your time. But, um, she, she borrows this quote from a psychoanalyst, Eric Fromm, who says, you know, when you do get extra time back, people 
people don't use it to relax really or or connect with family like tend to cram more in like oh I got all of this done I can go do more and that is the tendency in our culture to to do to do more to always to, to get more time but then to use it to work more yeah and definitely with with medical school you can always be learning something yes and you can definitely get in the pit like, oh, gosh, like I studied all this, but I have to study all this, too. And that is just ridiculous because your brain can only retain so much information in one. It's system. like a really perverse kind of FOMO. <laughs> like, yes, it's, yes. It's so messed up because, you know, I guess. We think people our age or in this stage of our lives are out having fun. That's always what we're thinking in the back of our minds. Like, someone's having more fun than me right now. But in medical school, someone's studying more than me right now. Someone's figuring this out. And I'm wasting my time here watching Netflix. And right like oh I can't go on this hike because everyone else is studying right now. Yeah, it's so messed up because we're studying all the time anyway. Like, Yes. Come on, what extra time are we talking about? It's like the amount of times that I, like, I took a break and was like, oh my gosh, there's someone out there who's learning <laughs> right now. Something that I'm not learning. Uh, it's just it's so yeah, it's It's really psychologically twisted. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, and another thing I'm thinking about is um, this... Um, this feeling we were talking about feeling rushed and rushed in life and rushed during the day. And now that we're kind of getting back into a work routine, sort of, sort of as third years, right. Okay. We go to work. We also go home and study. So it's not, it's weird. Um, but you know, my tendency or my instinct now probably as a millennial or someone working with a phone in their lives is to leave work get rid of my phone, delete a few emails, scroll through a few things, get in my car, put on a podcast, put on whatever, or call somebody, fill that space, fill that time, even that 10 minute drive home or whatever it is. And Lori talks about this in her therapy, right? She's seeing the patients have these, um, really intense connecting moments with the therapist where there's no devices, there's no distractions. You're really just sitting human to human and talking. And then as soon as therapy's over, the patient picks up their phone and is scrolling through their device. And she thinks of it as a kind of a mechanism of running away from that feeling rather than processing it, being in this state of perpetual distraction. Um, And I tried to borrow that idea like this last week in my life as a medical student by um, just giving myself that that minute or that second between seeing patients, between when I have my diagnosis and when I knock on the door to breathe, <laughs> to, to, to take in the moment and then come in fully composed into that interaction. And same with driving to and from work. I typically, like I said, I'll call somebody, I'll put on a podcast to distract myself, right? But I've found that giving myself that 10 to 15 minutes to either sit with some music or, or even quietly and just kind of wind down from the day and, and think about the things that I need to think about in my brain that are not my to-do list. 
but think about how, you know, what happened today? How did I show up today? What went wrong? What went great? And, and reflect back on that. Tori, I think I'm definitely going to try that because I am one of those people who also just jumps into their car and I just, I realized today I turn on my internal medicine podcast and I'm just listening to it, but I'm not really even hearing anything that's happening. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about my day, my interactions, what happened, what went well, what went poorly. So why don't I just turn it off and sit in silence with the wheels against the ground? Is that an ex- <laughs> It should be. <laughs> why can't you just sit there with your thoughts uninterrupted for 10 minutes? I mean, you're actually already doing something. You're driving. It's not like you're, you shouldn't be distracted anyways. road In your brain, you know, but try again, unless it's this podcast. Okay. If it's this podcast, listen up. All right. Just for that, I think that commuting distance, giving yourself that space to process your your thoughts for the day, your emotions, all of those things that went on during the day—the good, the bad, the ugly—and then and then moving on to the next thing. But giving yourself to do yourself space to do that so it doesn't accumulate every day, and you have all this baggage by the end of rotation, and you're trying to uncover what just happened, and then oh. It's Monday. I'm starting a new rotation. It's a new place. It's new everything. And you don't get that space, that chance to unpack any of it. Yes. And you won't fall apart if you experience emotions. I feel like that's a huge misconception. Is if That's one reason I try to distract myself. Yeah. Is like, gosh, I just need to be learning right now. I don't want to deal with those emotions that I felt today. And you know what? If you just let yourself feel them. They go Mm -hmm. away and you can move on with your life. A healthy person. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, it's one of the psychological defense mechanisms we've learned about, right? Is um, suppression where you, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's one of those mature defenses where if it's not the right time, it's not the right place. You suppress that emotion. You keep it professional. You move on to the next thing. But that's not a healthy thing 24 hours a day, in my opinion. Good for the interactions, good to keep it professional. But at some point, I, I, I personally have to take that, that foot off of my emotional lever or whatever and just, and just feel what I need to feel. Yeah, and I think it makes you a, a better physician and a better human for it. Agreed. She says this, she has this quote too, I like that's, feelings are like weather systems. They blow in and they blow out. Just because you feel sad this minute or this hour or this day doesn't mean you'll feel that way 10 minutes after this afternoon or this next week. Um, everything you feel, anxiety, elation, anguish, it blows in and it blows out. It's something to remind ourselves sometimes when, man, things can get pretty pretty hard sometimes. And I have to remind myself, this is one day. This is one experience. This is not... This does not make me or break me. This molds me into a more resilient, a more capable physician. Well, Tori, let's wrap this up with some ending thoughts that we have about the book and what we want to carry with us into our next rotation. And one quote that I liked that was actually from a different author, one of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, 
Um, she said, the truth does not change based on your ability to stomach it. And I think I'm going to carry with me our discussion about just being and letting things go. And reality is going to be reality. There's nothing that we can do to change it, but we are allowed to experience feelings about it. And we, those feelings pass and we can let them go. And that is what I'm going to carry with me into my OBGYN rotation. <laughs> nice. Um, well, Jasmine, one of the cool I'm taking away with me is from the author, Lori Gottlieb. She states, our younger selves think in terms of a beginning, middle, and some kind of resolution. But somewhere along the way, perhaps in the middle, we realize that everyone lives with things that may not get worked out. That the middle has to be the resolution and how we make meaning of it becomes our task. So I'm going to think of my journey right now as the middle and being okay with things being a little messy, with being inexperienced, with not being perfect and always giving my best, always learning, you know, being there in the middle, in the messy middle. Yes. Well, Tori, thank you so much for doing this with me and agreeing to be my co-host. Um, thank you, Jasmine. I can't wait to buy up see another book. And to our listeners, um, our next book of the month will be posted on our Instagram, which is BKBXPod. And it'll also be announced right now. <laughs> um, it's called Do You Believe in Magic? Vitamins, Supplements, and All Things Natural, Looking Behind the Curtain by Paul A. Offit, MD. And please send any suggestions, questions, and comments to our email address, bkbxpod at gmail.com. 